But it's New Year's, and so, uh, you know, it's the time for resolutions and dietary changes. It's also the time where you see plenty of best of the previous year, best of 2023, best songs, best articles, best books. And uh, in my feed reader, I've got a lot of my top ten list best books. People are uh, putting that out. My favorite book from this last year, I shared it with you a couple months ago, but it's this one by David Brooks. Uh, How to Know a Person, and I'm going to be drawing heavily from that book in this sermon. In it, he makes the argument that evil happens when people are unseeing, when they don't recognize, when they don't see the personhood in another human being, when we stereotype, we condescend, we ignore, we, we dehumanize, When we don't see other people accurately, then we inevitably treat them wrongly. And in the book, he asks the question, like, what if morality, whatever you associate with that word, um, what if morality is not a set of abstract philosophical moral principles? What if, what if morality is, is not even making big moral decisions in a climactic moment? Um, what if morality is much, much simpler? What if morality is just simply, how do you pay attention to other human beings? What if the essential moral act we we are all called to is to cast, in his words, to cast a just and loving attention on another person? Or in other words, what if love is, is essentially the knowledge of someone else? And by that, he, he goes on to say, like, he doesn't mean that we're supposed to romantically swoon for everybody we meet. Uh, but, but it does mean that a good person tries to look at everyone with a patient and discerning regard and tries to resist the self-centeredness that we all suffer from, tries to overcome the, the prejudice that we all suffer from in, in order to see another person like, more deeply and with with greater discernment. You know, we, uh, as I look back on 2023 as a church plant reconciled, you know, we have, we struggled to get, you know, new visitors to come to us when we talked about that. And, and I, I mean, I've invited a lot of people and I know you've invited a lot of people too. And, and some of those have come, um, many haven't. But as I think about 2024, I mean, it's out of our hands, isn't it? Who does or doesn't walk through the, the doors, you know, into our community. That's that's entirely it is out of our hands. But what it what is in our hands, or at least what is sort of in our hands, is John three thirteen, you know, verses thirty four and thirty five. I I give you a new command: like love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's the the challenge that I want to set before you in this New Year's sermon. Uh, you know, the sermon after Christmas is like the usually the hardest sermon of the year to write. And that's why most pastors take it off and they hand it to the, the associate pastor, the junior pastor, because, you know, the week is just crazy. And this past week has been crazy for us. And I've had a cold and a brain fog, so... I, I hope the sermon is clear enough for you to understand it. But what I want to give us is just a simple, a simple challenge for, for what 
you know, the next year could, could mean and could be like. And, and that challenge is, is to love one another better. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again in prayer, and we recognize that when Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us, that kind of love, that kind of love is so far beyond us, Lord. <laughs> I mean, he is asking for something that is so difficult and so far-reaching We acknowledge that we cannot do it on our own. Absolutely not. For us to truly love anybody in that way, in the way that Jesus has loved us, that energy, that power, that perseverance, that patience, that commitment, it all has to come from you. And so we confess just with open hands to you our our neediness. We, We need your love and your power and for the Holy Spirit to be at the very center of our lives. And so do that, Father. Do that for us as a, as a church. Do it for us as individuals. You know, enable us for this task and sustain us. And teach us, even in the sermon, greater skills for love. Um, because you, Lord, are love. And I mean, love is, is the very nature of the Trinity. And so we pray to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach us how to love one another. In Jesus' name, And God's people said, Amen. Uh, Jesus describes it as a new commandment. You say, well, how is that a new commandment? Because the Old Testament has commands to love all throughout it. You go to Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as, as yourself. Like, what is the newness of this commandment to love one another? The newness isn't, you know, it's not a matter of never having heard words like these before. It's a matter of the intensity and the, the mode of love, the intensity of love, the depth of love, and, the manner of this love. And, you know, he says that love one another, love one another the way that I have loved you. And how has he, how has he loved us? Well, I mean, he's known us, hasn't he? Like he knows us. To, to love us, he, he had to truly know us and to know us completely <laughs> from top to bottom, from, from left to right and beginning and end. Like he has had to know us through and through every aspect of us, all the things that we are probably deeply ashamed about us. He, he knows all of that. And his laying down his life for us on the cross is based on what he knows of our individual needs. Um, he knows us, and, and we need to know each other, number one. And that's a problem, right? Because we don't, we don't really know others. And the big question is, do I even want to know others? Do you agree with that statement? That we don't really know others? I mean, how well do you really know the people that you work with? How, how well do you really know the people that you live in the same home with? And do we really want, do we really want it? Do we really want to know the people in this room, in this community? Biographer David, David McCullough, you may have read some of his works. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning historical biographer, fantastic writer. Uh, he used to keep a sign over his desk, and the sign, it read this, look at your fish. <laughs> and the story, apparently, it, it was inspired by a teacher he had had at Harvard years ago who used to, at the first day of class, he would take a fishbowl and he would plop it um, right on the table in the middle of the class, and he would ask his students to to write about it. To which the, the students would respond, "You know what? Like, what do you mean? It's it's just a fish." 
And the teacher would say, look again and look again. He encouraged the students to look and look and look until they started to see the, the details that immediately uh, we, we instinctively just gloss over. And like, once they started to look again, um, the texture of the fins would start to show to them. You know, that it would come to life. And so would the colors of the scales and the fluctuations of colors in the scales. And by the end of the semester, the students would see how, how that simple little fish was in fact like wondrously complex and beautiful. And, you know, how much more, right? How much more? If that's true of fish, how much more is that true of of people, right? Like, one of the things that ought to drive our curiosity about other people is how individually fascinating every one of us are. (laughs) Like, every one of us has a story. We all have a story. And every story, when you actually listen to it, is fascinating. And every story is far more unpredictable um, than, than you might imagine. Every particular life story is far more astounding and unpredictable than any of the stereotypical generalizations that we have about other categories uh, of, of people, the way we lump people in into groups. One of the primary ways, I believe, that we fail to love one another is we failed, we just, we, we fail to be curious. Um, and we, we fall into disinterest towards other human beings. We, we are truly disinterested. You know, David Brooks was interviewing a woman by the name of uh, LaRue Dorsey. She is, was 93 years old. They were in Waco, Texas. They were sitting down at a diner to eat. And uh, Dorsey, she was presented to him as a, a fairly stern disciplinarian. And he said, I went into that conversation with her maybe a little bit on the intimidated side because even when we sat down, she was she had that very stern look on her face. Well, they're eating at a diner in Texas and in walks a pastor by the name of Jimmy Durrell. And Jimmy Durrell, he pastored a church that primarily served people who are experiencing homelessness. It's called Church Under the Bridge. And uh, he walks in, he sees a guy sitting at the table with Miss um, Dorsey, and he, he walks up to her, and in Brooks' words, he starts to shake her by the, the shoulders, like, far, far more vigorously than you think you should probably do with a 93-year-old woman. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it was like a love shake, right? And, and he says, Mrs., Miss Dorsey, you are the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he said, suddenly... That dour 93-year-old woman, I mean, she just became a nine-year-old child in front of me. She transformed into that, you know, metamorphosis with, you know, her gaze just blossoming, shining eyes. And he said, you know, the key point of that was it's not that Jimmy's a warmer person than I am. He was talking about himself, although he is. He says the key point is that when when Jimmy Durrell looks at any human being, any other human being, he believes that he's staring into the face of God. You know, he believes, he's, he sees every person as made in the image of God. He's looking at somebody that is so important that Jesus Christ was willing to lay down his life for their sins. Um, and that's why, that's why he's willing to take the time to get to know them. You know, our problem um, is we're busy. We're, you know, really busy. <laughs> and, and we're so busy, we don't, we don't have time to really get to know others. And, and we all know that's a, a really silly cop-out, isn't it? Because it's not a time problem. It's, 
It's that we really have stopped looking at others with that level of reverence and respect. Like, we've become bored of, of other people. And surely, like, our phones have, have made, that, made it a billion times worse because our for, phones just give us immediate you know, entertainment and, and stimulation. And to look at another person and to really get to know them, it takes far more, far more energy. Um, we become bored, and we don't really care to know who they really are. And that is, that might be, that could be, the primary challenge that the church will face in this next decade is can we actually be people who are interested in others? Number two, even if you want, uh, let's say you get over that hump and you're like, I really do want to know another human being and know them deeply and see them uh, with discernment and cast, as he says, like, cast a just and respectful gaze at them. Even if we, even if we want to do that, a lot of times we lack the skills to do it, don't we, right? We lack the skills to be good conversationalists. We lack the skills to ask good questions. Are we willing to, to try and learn these? And that's a very challenging thing, isn't it? Because it's not as though, it's not as though anybody teaches that in school anymore. I mean, like, how many classes do you have on how to be a good question answer, asker? How, how to be a good conversationalist? We don't, we don't, the church doesn't even teach those kinds of things. And with a breakdown of the family, it's very frequently families don't teach those kinds of things. And so uh, we, we become very shallow conversationalists. And it's easy to be a shallow conversationalist, especially especially at church, right? To talk about sports and the weather. And, and if you don't know somebody super well, maybe meeting them for, for the first time and talking about sports and the weather, that's, that's okay. You know, it's, a, it's an okay initial stage. But it's why opportunities outside of the narthex of church, like meals and hikes and, and just doing stuff together, uh, are so vital for any kind of community formation, right? I love what he says. In, he, sa- he says, I've come to think of questioning, actually questioning as a moral practice. Like when you are asking a good question, you're adopting a posture of humility. You're confessing that you don't know and you want to learn you're honoring a person. He goes on, we all like to think we're so clever and that we can imagine what's going on in another's mind, but the evidence shows that this doesn't, doesn't work. People are just too different from one another, too complicated, too idiosyncratic, and, and you know, that's why you have to ask good questions to draw them out. And he goes on, he suggests that only 30% of us are by nature question askers. Like 70% of us will will not ask a question. How many times have you come home from a, a meal or come home from some kind of party and, uh, and you, you say to your spouse or you say to your parents, you say, nobody, nobody asked me a single question the entire time I was there. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. And so here we have a, a few tips on how to ask good questions. And again, this is in the spirit of how to love one another well. And it's in the spirit, we probably don't know. We probably haven't been taught this very well. Uh, the, the weaker kinds of questions would be, well, first off, those that don't surrender power. You know, those that evaluate the other person, such as, like, well, where did you go to school? Where did you go to college? Uh, what neighborhood do you live in? Uh, what do you do for a living? Um, they imply, or they can imply, that I'm about to judge you. <laughs> um, 
Likewise, a second set of questions that are not the best would be, uh, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, like closed questions versus open questions. Closed questions are, in a sense, taking power away from the person you're asking the question to. I mean, for example, if you mention, um, if you mention that your mother, uh, your mother, uh, something about your mother, and I ask, were you close to your mother? Well, that's a, a yes or a no answer. And what I've done is I've limited your description of your relationship to your mother based on those two categories. Were you close close or distant, that, that frame? But if you ask instead, like, how is your mother? Then that kind of open question gives the, the answer or the, the freedom to go as, as deep or as shallow as they want. And then a third sure way to shut down conversations is just to ask vague questions. And we do this all the time, don't we? Like, how's it going? What's up? Um, oftentimes those questions are impossible to ask. How you doing? Um, they're another way of saying that I'm greeting you, but I don't actually want to know what you say in answer, in answer to this. The best kinds of questions, the best questions are, are those that encourage the other person to take control and to lead you wherever it is that they want, they want to go. Um, so here's a few. And th- if this is too granular for you, you know, forgive me. Like, how did you? How did you dot, dot, dot? Or what's it like? Dot, dot, dot. Or tell me about. That's a really good one. Tell me about dot, dot, dot. Or in what ways? Dot, dot, dot. A moderator was working with a focus group, and she was trying to understand why some people, why they go to the grocery store late at night to shop. And um, instead of asking the question in the form of, well, why do you go out late, which could kind of sound accusatory, she instead asked the question, tell me about, dot, 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 tell me about the last time you went to the grocery store at 11 o'clock or later. Uh, What happened? And she ends up getting... Crazy answers to that question. They just go in all kinds of, of different directions. Other questions that we might ask, and these are a little deeper. This is not what you ask the first time you meet someone. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, think about what an awesome conversation that would be. Like, what crossroads are you at in life? That's a great hiking conversation. Or, you know, what would you do if you weren't afraid? I'm recognizing that all of us are, are limited by our fears. Um, another one, if you died tonight, what would you regret not doing? I mean, who of us don't have regrets? And then, or if, in, if the, this is one I really like, and this is a kind of nice for the start of the new year. If the next five years is a chapter in your life, what do you think, what do you want that chapter to be about? You know, my point in sharing these is not to make you feel like, oh, I'm a terrible questioner. <laughs> it is not for uh, make you feel like, oh, we should be question police and, and be policing the way that we're asking each other questions. But just as a, it's a skill that we can grow in. And it's really, it's a skill of love that we can grow in. Once you've asked a good question, uh, number three, you know, you're going to pay careful attention. And what I want you to do is to listen to the way people tell their stories to better understand them. And if, anything, if I say anything that's helpful to you, this might, this might be it, or what I hope might be it. Good conversationalists ask for stories about specific events and experiences, but then they go further. 
They don't only want to talk about what happened. They want to know how you experienced what happened. Does that, it's not what happened, it's what, how you experienced it, right? They want to understand what you were feeling when, you know, your boss told you that you were being laid off. Was your first thought, was your first thought, how do I tell my family? Uh, was the dominant emotion you felt dread or, or humiliation or, or perhaps relief maybe, you know? A good conversationalist is going to ask how you're experiencing, how you experienced it then, and then maybe how you're experiencing it now. Was getting laid off a complete disaster, or did it send you off on a new path that you're now grateful for? What, that may be a little too specific. In the broad sense, when we try to get to know people, we not only want to ask what happened to them, we want to focus on how they make meaning of their story. Because all of us are basically constructing a, a narrative, a story of the events that happened to us. Like Aldous Huxley, Brave New World author, he said, and I agree with him, that experience is not what happens to you. It's what you, it's what you do with what happens to you. It's not how you take an event. I'm sorry, it, it is how you take an event and turn it into meaning and importance. You know, a lot of people survive a trauma, but whether they prosper or not after the trauma is determined by how they how they can process it and whether they confront it and whether they can inhabit it and whether they can understand it and put it in the perspective of a larger story. And I, I just think that, that this whole idea is really important. When you're listening to someone well, you're not just seeing things like, okay, he went to such and such school. He uh, worked such and such job. He, he had this terrible thing that happened to him at this point in his life. He had this great thing that happened to him at this point in his life. It's not, you're, you're listening to hear who they have become as a result of it, you know. Um, you're, you're listening for the meaning they make and, and the, the overall storyline that they're, they're fitting themselves into. Does that make sense? You know, and, they say that there's only like seven basic plot lines in in all of literature, and most of us we we take one, by the time we become adults, we have a plot line for our lives, and they they come in these different kinds of forms, like the overcoming the monster, uh, in which you know the hero defeats some central threat like alcoholism through friendship and courage, um, or uh, rags to riches. You know, in which the hero starts out impoverished and, and obscure and rises to prominence. Or uh, uh, the quest, you know, the Lord of the Rings, a story in which the hero undertakes a voyage in pursuit of some goal and is transformed by the journey. These, everybody's got a plot line that they, that they have made, that they, that they fit their life into. And what you want to do, you want to listen to what that is. You want to understand how a unique individual sees and narrates their own life, which, again, is way more interesting than the stereotypes and the generalizations that we normally have of, of other people. Number four, I've got four and then five. Once you see a person, then you know better how to serve them, how to counsel them, how to encourage them. And, and we do want to serve them, right? We, we, I mean, to, to love is the way, that, the way that Jesus loves is not only to know them, but it's then to lay down our life on behalf of them, just as he did for us. And, but many times when we ask somebody the question, um, how can I help you? And we, we ask, how can I help you? And we ask that directly. 
That question doesn't get us very far, does it? No. Either people will be reluctant to tell you uh, what they need because they don't want to be a burden, or sometimes they may not even know themselves what it is, what they need. But just like I, I said recently, just like at a, a, a Christmas or a birthday, when somebody gives you a good gift, it means that they were paying attention to you. And when somebody gives you a bad gift, you sometimes wonder, do they know me at all? Right? <laughs> In the same way, like our service, when you're able to go to someone concretely and say, I've been looking, I've been listening, I've been seeing, and what I think, what I think you need right now is this. Can I, can I bring this over in another hour? Can, can I do this specific thing for you, uh, this next week? Here's how I'm gonna be praying for you specifically as you go through this. You're able, when you know somebody, you, you know better how it is to specifically sacrifice on their behalf. Does that make sense? And then the, the thing that I probably can't overemphasize is just the importance of follow-up. Um, follow-up, in my opinion, is one of the most neglected aspects of Christian community because all of us probably have had an experience where you know you shared a need with somebody or you shared a prayer request with someone and uh, you maybe you shared it with a, a group and and then that need you know, was there and nobody ever checks back in with you to find out, like, how did it go? Uh, in a, they say they're going to be praying for you, but they never follow up with that. Uh, I, I just think follow-up is absolutely crucial in, in this the love circle, so to speak. Uh, I can think of someone who is in our life and she lives in our neighborhood. She doesn't go to church, but she has been like, one of the most just consistently uh, loving people towards me and to, towards our family. She has had us over for coffee and breakfast uh, on a number of mornings just to talk and just to have conversation. And then when I got out of the hospital a few months ago, she ended up bringing over to the house like this special homemade soup that was good for people who have digestive problems. And, you know, she had gone to the trouble to make up like a special soup recipe for me. And then when Hannah, um, when the, the wedding fell through, then like the very next day she bakes a, a carrot cake and she brings it over and a homemade card. And, it, you know, it's just those moments when, when somebody, somebody treats you in such a way that you, you feel seen. And you feel valued, and you feel known, and that is love. I give that story not because, uh, not to say like she's loved us and others haven't, because you know you, you guys have loved us tremendously over a very hard last couple months. But that's what I want. That's what I desperately want for everyone in our community to feel is is to feel seen, is to feel known, is to feel deeply, deeply loved. Um, and number five. When you understand another person, you know, that is essential for just navigating the hard conversations of life, navigating the conflict, um, navigating the polarization that's present in our culture right now, and somehow, you know, maintaining just humanity and, and unity. Brooks, if you didn't know, David Brooks is a columnist, an opinion columnist at the New York Times, and he writes, he writes political opinions that, uh, draw the ire of people all the time, you know, both 
on the left and, and on the right. And I mean, he'll get them uh, the nastiest emails. And I mean, I know Christians who think David Brooks is like the most horrible guy in the world. And, and then there are people who are not Christians who think David Brooks is the most horrible guy in the world. And he'll, you know, he'll get those e- emails coming in. What I love about this man is here he says, um, next quote, John. No, the one before that, understanding their point of view. Oh, we don't have it. Let me read it to it. Uh, oh, it's because I didn't put it on the slides. <laughs> Usually if there's a slide problem, it was because of me, <laughs> not John. He says, he says, understanding their point of view is the first step and really important step in getting to know someone. If somebody comes at me and maybe is to my right or to my left and views me with disdain because of the things that I believe, you know, they're often to come at, come at me with a critique. You know, they think my beliefs are wrong, and they think maybe my re- beliefs are repulsive. And, and I've had, like we all have, these hard conversations with other people in the po- po- polarizing times. I mean, say it's a Trump supporter who, who doesn't like my disdain for Donald Trump, and they, they come at me and, and they blame me for being part of the media establishment, which I am, and, and part of the elite media, uh, which I am, and, and they'll attack me. And what I've learned in these hard conversations my first job is just to stand in their viewpoint. Stand in their viewpoint. And so I will do, I will ask questions in three or four different ways. But uh, all of them in the variety of, tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. What, what am I missing here? Show, show me more. And I find that if I ask the question in three or four different ways, um, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to first understand their point of view. And and I'm honoring them. And he goes, I, I, one thing I've tr- learned over the years is I no longer ask people, what do you believe about this? I ask, how did you come to believe this about that? Because if I phrase the question that way, then it's a story that they can tell me. I'm asking them for a story of the values that shape them or the experiences that shape them or the people who shape them to lead them to the place that they have the very strong, you know, uh, you know, serious views that, that they have. And, and so I'm getting inside their head and, and I'm really understanding them a little better. And you know, the other thing I'm doing by asking those questions is, is I'm showing them respect. And you know what they say about, respe- about respect? And whenever you're in a hard, hard, hard conversation, respect is like air. Like when it's there, um, you don't even realize it's there. But when it's missing, it's all that you can think about. <laughs> its absence is all that you can think about. And, I, I, you know, he just, you know, Brooks happens to be a Christian, but his view of, of how it is that I can try to stand and inhabit the point of view of another person and to have them give me a story that helps me understand their, their own life experience that got them to the place that they believe so strongly this, that, or the other. Like, I thought, if if churches actually started to do that, like, wouldn't that have an incredible effect on our communities, on our unity? Of course it, it would. Is listening to the point of view of another human is humanizing. All right, in conclusion, I, I realize this may not be the sermon you needed to hear, and, and it may not have been clear. And, and I, I'm especially worried that this sermon may come across as 
Uh, here's another thing that you're not doing well. You know, you're not you're not asking good questions. You're not you know loving other people. You need to love people better in 2024. And and I apologize if it if it comes across that way. What what I want all of us to know, first and foremost, is the deep deep love of Jesus. And I love that Craig selected that song today. Like what we need at the center of our lives is to know that that deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, is really ours. Um, And that, like, the central claim of Christianity is that that love does not diminish, (laughs) that that love um, doesn't doesn't disappear, uh, even... uh, you know, even if we are absolutely sick and tired of ourselves and are so frustrated and, and, and despise ourselves, he, he doesn't treat us the way that we treat us. You can trust in that love, and it is all for you. You know, churches, we strategize on, on how to get more people in the door and how to make the gospel more attractive to others and how to make Jesus more attractive to others. We come up with a million different strategies on, on how to grow our churches, programs, advertisements, what did Jesus say in John 13? He says, here is how they will know um, that you are my disciples, by your love for each other. And if that's what we go after in 2024 as a little church plant, we go deep and, and hard after seeing and knowing and loving one another, then um, I'll be very satisfied with that as an outcome. Amen.